We will continue our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning with Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. History is filled with flawed heroes and virtuous villains. And what I mean by that is that though some of the great villains of history are bad, they are complex characters, and in the same way, though some of our heroes in history accomplished great things, they are all flawed men for every one of us throughout all of history, is born in Adam, marked by sin, whether hero or villain, so to say. One historian reminds him of this truth as he evaluates different people from history with the simple phrase, only Jesus is Jesus. And only Satan is Satan. And the simple truth that what he means to say in this is that there is one who is perfectly righteous and one who is perfectly good. And there is one who is wicked beyond belief. And in the passage this morning, we see the perfect man, our Lord Jesus Christ, engaged from a position of weakness, humanly speaking, in conflict with the archetype of villainy who stands in a position of strength, humanly speaking. And as we see them in this pitched conflict, what we see from Jesus is that He shows us what it means to live faithfully as a man who is the Son of God. To live faithfully as a child of His heavenly Father. And He does so by demonstrating complete dependence, whole devotion, and total trust in His heavenly Father. And as we look at the passage, we will also see something of Satan, something of his strategy, something of his tactics. And as we look again then to Christ, we will see something of how one can resist the devil and all of his temptations. And so, if you found your place, would you follow along with me in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, as I read to verse 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word this morning, we pray that you would give us light and give us understanding. 
Give us wisdom to comprehend these things and to receive them with the eyes of faith. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word to conform us to the image of your Son. That we might, in seeing him, trust him all the more, and in seeing him, be made more like him more and more. These things, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at a genealogy, and that genealogy concluded in a a way that functions like an invitation. That with those final words, the Son of Adam, the Son of God, ringing in our ears, Luke invites us to contemplate and to compare and to contrast one Son of God with the perfect Son of God. For Adam indeed was a Son of God in some sense. For when God made him, he made him in his image and in his likeness. Those, that idea is profound, but one of the things in wi- that, wi- that it conveys is the idea of sonship, that God made Adam to live with God in a particular relationship as his son. Adam was to be a faithful son, but he was not. In this way, he is decidedly unlike Jesus, the perfect Son of God. But what we see as we contemplate Genesis 3 and what happened there in the garden when Adam and Eve were tempted and fell is that Satan came to him in very much the same way that he came to Christ. And in that contrast that obtains, we begin to see something of the wonder of what Christ accomplished for us in all of his life even in his perfect righteousness, resisting temptation to the end. You see, there in the garden, Satan came in the guise of a serpent to the man, not in the wilderness suffering hunger, but a man in paradise who had all that he needed. And in his strategy, Satan confronted him with a question which he posed to the woman, to Eve. Did God really say, that you cannot eat of any tree in the, myth, in the garden. Of course, that's not what God said. He restricted only one tree to them and gave them freely to eat of every other tree. But with that question, with those words, what Satan did was he sowed a seed of doubt in their minds. He sowed a seed of doubt to cause them to doubt the goodness of God to cause them to wonder if God had really given them good things or if he was not perhaps withholding something from them. And then Satan took those words of God which he had first twisted and then he outright denied them, challenging them not only to look for something better, but he also challenged them to assert their independence to say, we will be lords and masters of our own lives. For when he offered that, they would come to know the difference between good and evil. In those words is implied the idea that they would take for themselves the right to determine what is good and what is evil. For them to determine their destiny in life. That was what Satan offered to them, and they took it. They were tempted they followed in the way that he led. And so Adam fell and proved to be a faithless son of God. The result, of course, 
was that that separation was accomplished, but it wasn't what he was looking for. He was estranged from his maker. And yet, that estrangement didn't promise a fuller life, but it only brought death. In the course of time, God called another son, as it were. That is, the people of Israel, he declared to be his son. This is a little bit strange for us to hear in our modern ears because we're not used to thinking of the corporate nation in the same way that we think of an individual like Adam. And yet, this is what God said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, when he sent Moses to Pharaoh. He said to Moses to say this to that king, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. In the same way, the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1 1, picked up on this idea when he spoke of Israel and God calling Israel out of Egypt. He spoke of them as God's son, as one who typified that perfect son who was to come. Now God brought Israel into the wilderness to teach them faith. But like Adam, Israel was faithful, excuse me, Israel was faithless in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, for instance, we read about how they came to a place that would be called Massa, a place where they found no water to drink, and they grumbled against Moses, and they grumbled against the Lord, and they said, is the Lord among us or not? And thus we read, they put God to the test in that place. And again, in Exodus 32, when Moses was 40 days fasting on Mount Sinai, receiving the commandments from the Lord, the people forgot about Moses and they rejected him and they rejected the Lord and instead they crafted for themselves a golden idol, a calf which they bowed down to and worshipped. They chose not to worship the Lord their God alone, but to worship in any way they so chose. And once more in Numbers chapter 14, when God led them through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land, to the edge of that good land, they stopped trusting the Lord. But when the spies went into the land and wandered about it for 40 days, they despaired as they saw the nations that inhabited that land and their strength. And in their despair, they came back with a report saying that we cannot take this land. We cannot conquer. And only Joshua and Caleb insisted that the Lord was among them, that the Lord would give them the battle, and the rest of the nation rejected the Lord and failed to depend upon Him, failed to trust Him. And so He made them to wander in that wilderness for 40 years, one year for each of the days in which the spies wandered in the land. And during that time, God taught them God taught these faithless children what it meant to depend upon Him. And so when that generation that rejected the Lord's ways died out and a new generation prepared to go into the land, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy took to teach them and he reminded them of these things. He charged them not to turn from the Lord to idols, saying, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. And again, he warned them not to doubt God's goodness as their fathers had at Massa, where they complained because they thirsted. He said this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him. 
when you wanted that water as you tested him at Massa. And he reminded them of the truth they learned those 40 years as they wandered and as they ate the bread of heaven, saying, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In all these things, Moses challenged this new generation of Israelites to remain faithful to God as a faithful son. But generation after generation rejected the Lord, rejected his ways, and turned to faithlessness. Thus the prophet Hosea would say in Hosea 6-7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Israel was a faithless son. So God sent them into exile. But he sent them there with a promise that he would restore them through another exodus and he would restore them through another son, one in the likeness of Adam who would be faithful as a son. And so this morning as we come to Luke, Luke invites us to contemplate these things, to think on these two sons, on Adam and Israel, as we look at Christ and we see him 40 days wandering in the wilderness, fasting and hungry. And quoting from those words that I read from Deuteronomy and demonstrating that he is the faithful son who did and does what Israel failed to do, who did and does what Adam failed to do, who did and does for us what we all fail to do. And so we come to Luke chapter 4. and We see the faithful son of God in the wilderness. Now Luke begins with a preparation. He notes two important things about the Son of God. Two important things about Jesus Christ. First, that He was full. And second, that He was empty. He was full in one way and He was empty in another. For Luke begins by saying that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit And full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan. There he reminds us of Luke 3, 21 and 22, where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John and then received the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him there in a visible way. And Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit here, and he returns from the Jordan, and he is led by the Spirit. Now, Luke often uses this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. He shows us in the book of Acts, as we've seen in a prior week, that every person who is in Christ, every person who is a believer, has received the Holy Spirit. But this particular phrase he uses to refer to people who demonstrate the Spirit's work in their lives in a peculiar and powerful way. So he uses it to describe people like Stephen, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and the other deacons. And he uses this phrase to describe Barnabas and others who demonstrated great faithfulness and who demonstrated great power as the Spirit worked through them. This is the phrase that he uses here to describe Jesus. He is full of the Holy Spirit, and he returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
Matthew and Mark testify in much the same way, but Mark says it with greater strength. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That this was the intent of God. It was the will of God that Christ should go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And yet he would not go empty. He went full. For he was full of the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to see that. His obedience did not stem did not stem from having the right circumstances. It stemmed from the fact, it came from the fact, it was founded in the fact that he was full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And yet he was also empty. Luke tells us that for these 40 days as he was in the wilderness, as he was being tempted, he ate nothing during those days. And to make the point expressly clear, he says that when they were en- ended, he was hungry. Whatever Christ felt throughout the 40 days, as he came to the end of it, he was hungering. He was feeling the desire for food, and you can imagine how that would be. Of course, there were times when God supernaturally sustained a person without food or drink for 40 days. He did so for Moses on Sinai, and he did so for Elijah, when Elijah went in the strength of food that God had given him for 40 days to Mount Sinai again, to Horeb there, the mountain of God. And yet here Luke wants us to know that Jesus is not supernaturally without hunger, but God has allowed him to feel that hunger, to feel that need, to feel that human desire to satisfy his appetite. And that's an important thing to see too. How often we fall and stumble and sin and blame our circumstances because we were hungry or we were tired or we were struggling with some sort of lack. But what we're going to see here is that in times of plenty or times of need, in plenty as with Adam or in times of need as with Christ, it does not matter. The means by which we are enabled to obey is not outside of us within our circumstances. It is from God who enables us, who sustains us, who sanctifies us. And so it was with Christ in His human life. I want you to see that because it's important to help us to understand the nature of the devil's temptations. Here in the first temptation, the devil comes to him and he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He challenges him to turn bread to stones, which immediately or simply strikes us as strange. Neither you nor I have ever been tempted to turn bread to stones, I I suspect. And yet, though this temptation is peculiar to Christ, there is something that is similar to the way in which we all are tempted. And we will see that as we proceed through the text, how it's not just about turning stone to bread, but it's about driving a wedge between Christ and His heavenly Father, driving a wedge between the Father and the Son, which will prove impossible to do. Here he comes to him and he says, if you are the Son of God, this phrase, this idea of this phrase is a kind of for the sake of argument statement. Let's say, for the sake of argument, one might say, Satan would say, let's say for the sake of argument that you are the Son of God. Let's put that idea to the test. You're hungry. I can see that. You've not eaten for 40 days. I can see that. Well, if you're the Son of God, look at these stones. You could 
Snap your fingers. You could say a word. You could make those stones and the bread and satisfy your hunger and satisfy your want. And some of us might say, as I have said and said many times in my youth, what would be so wrong with that? Why would that be a sin? In many other places, Jesus demonstrates his mighty power through miraculous works. Why on this occasion would it have been wrong for him to do what the devil demanded? And the answer is simply this. When God brought Christ into the wilderness, it was his will that he should hunger, and Jesus understood that. When it would be God's will that he should be fed, God would provide the means by which he should be fed. But it would not be something that he did apart from the will of his Father. It would not be something that he did in his own power. You see, what I want you to understand is this. Though Jesus never ceased to be the Son of God, he never ceased to have all the attributes of God. He is fully God and fully man. In his human life, he did not use his divine power for his own means, as a means to gratify himself. As Paul says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul says. That does not mean he ceased to be God. It means he did not use his divine nature, the fact that he is the Son of God, as a tool in his hands to make himself great or to satisfy some felt need. But in everything, he entrusted himself to the care of his heavenly Father. And here he was only learning a lesson, demonstrating that he had learned a lesson from Deuteronomy chapter 8, the words that he quotes. Because you see in Deuteronomy 8, in the context in which I read earlier, when Moses said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said it in the context of their history in the wilderness, how God had allowed the people of Israel to hunger for a reason that they might learn this lesson. And in the same way, Jesus understood that God brought him in the wilderness and allowed him to hunger for a reason. And so he trusted himself to the care of his heavenly Father. What Satan was demanding that he do is to use his power in a way that was contrary to the will of his Father. That could never happen. The Father and the Son cannot be separated. And yet it was a real temptation. He really felt it and the weight of it. For he is fully God, and yet he became fully man. That's what Satan was challenging him to do. He was trying to drive a wedge between father and son. And so it is with us. He wants to sever us from the God of life, for he is a murderer. And his desire is that we should be separated from our maker. And he does this by seeking to convince us that God does not love us or God does not care for us as he should. He wants us to think that either God will not provide for us or that we do not need God to provide for us. And he can do this through plenty, as I've said, and he can do this with little. In the garden, he questioned God's goodness. Did God really say? And in the wilderness, he had a subtler approach. You are the Son of God. You can do this on your own. If you want something to eat, you'll have to do it yourself. Simply not true. And Jesus knew better. His response 
demonstrated the humble trust that becomes a true and faithful son of God. For a true and faithful son of God depends upon his father completely. And this, the perfect son of God, demonstrated complete dependence on the care of God. It's an amazing and wonderful mystery. And yet it's what God has shown us of himself. The father sent the son to live as a man. And in his life as a man, he demonstrated what it means to be faithful as a man by depending on God the Father and the provision that he provided. And so he knew that man shall not live by bread alone. In effect, as Satan challenged Jesus, if you are the Son of God, in his answer, he highlighted his true humanity and the necessity of dependence. For the true and faithful Son of God depends upon his Father completely. Well, Satan then shifted his tactics, altered his strategy, and came at Jesus with another challenge, another temptation, another test. Here, he offered a devil's bargain. We read in verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. In one sense, Satan is making a false offer, but in another sense, it is a real and true offer. But what it shows is the extraordinary wickedness of Satan, his extraordinary pride and his arrogance, but also his awesome power. In a moment of time, Luke says, he took Jesus up. He took him up, and in that moment of time, he allowed Jesus to see all of the kingdoms of the earth. This is not something that you can do in human power. This is something that the devil was able to do with great non-human power, great and mighty ability. And he shows him the splendor of these nations. He shows him their glory. He shows him all that they are in that moment of time. And he makes this offer. If you will bow down and worship me, I will give them to you. In that moment, he showed his cards. He showed his hands. For it seems to us from a human perspective that this is a no, no big deal kind of offer. All I've got to do is bow down and I can be the king of it all. I can have all of it. It would be mine. But what he was offering him was that which Jesus was already promised but apart from from God, And in that moment, Satan showed what he's really after, what he really wants. He wants to be in the place of Almighty God. And his arrogance, his amazing hubris that he thinks he can be. In Psalm chapter 2, the Lord said to the Christ, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw in a vision one like a son of man who was given a kingdom without end. Jesus was promised a kingdom from his heavenly Father, but the way to that kingdom was through a cross. And Satan came and said, I'll give you that way in a shortcut. Let me be your benefactor. I'll be the one to give it to you. But it's also a foolish promise. It's not only that it's an amazing sign of arrogance, but it's a promise that can never truly be fulfilled. 
For Satan's power has an expiration date. He will not reign forever. What he could offer in that moment was only temporary and fleeting. And so it is with us. So often, Satan offers us different bargains. I think few of us would think, I would like to be the king of it all. But there are many things that we would like, many things that we lust after. For Adam and Eve, he offered them autonomy. He offered them life apart from God. And they found a life apart from God, but it was not life. The thing that he offered could never last. So it is with us. The things that he offers, whether it's wealth or power or sex or fame, we think they will satisfy, and Satan would have us think it. But whatever he can give us, and he really could give you a kingdom or wealth, he cannot offer the real promise, one that will satisfy your soul forever. All of these things will only leave us empty. And Jesus demonstrated in his response that he understood this because his response showed humble devotion to the one who can satisfy. And so, again, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus understood that there is one who is worthy of worship. He understood that there is one who can satisfy our hearts. There is one who can give us eternal joy. He alone is worthy of our worship. And Jesus understood that the true and faithful Son of God is devoted to the Father completely. And so he rejected this second temptation, this second offer given to him by the devil. But Satan had one more trick up his sleeves, cunning deceit. If an outright offer of a kingdom would not work, he would come at him with a more deceitful tactic. Again, he begins with that question that he asked in the first temptation, or that statement of skeptical uh, questioning, if you are the Son of God. And he challenges him, throw yourself down from here. He had just taken him to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the pinnacle, where they likely stood at the corner of the temple complex and looked down over a great ravine, over a great valley, with jagged edges and rocks beneath. And there he says, throw yourself down from here. And again, it's a temptation that strikes us as strange. We might think, why on earth would I do that? And yet, Satan substantiates the offer with the words of Scripture. He quotes rightly and truly from Psalm 91. That is, he gets the words right, even if he leaves out some of the words. Here in Psalm 91, 11 and 12, he quotes, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And he continues, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He left out some words there in between these verses, guard you in all your ways. And whether that was part of the deceit or not, it's difficult for us to perceive. But more importantly, he neglects a larger context. This is a tactic that is designed to appeal to a pious mind and to deceive them into thinking that God might will something that he does not will. 
As one scholar puts it in his commentary on this text from Matthew's Gospel, Satan's deceit lay in misapplying his quotation into a temptation that easily traps the devout mind by apparently warranting what might otherwise be thought sinful. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 refers to anyone who trusts God and thus preeminently to Jesus. And one other scholar notes, notice that the mere use of Bible words does not necessarily convey the will of God. We saw in the garden that Satan had twisted God's words before, and here he twists them in a subtler way. To the pious mind, it sounds like perhaps he has a point. If God will guard me in all my ways, if he indeed has promised to protect me, to even command his angels concerning me, could I not cast myself headlong from here? And in the context of his wilderness wanderings, there may be a subtle suggestion of, we do really need to test this out because you are suffering, and that seems a bit strange. That's not what we should expect for a faithful son of God, is it? In our own context, we hear this kind of thing all the time. The words of Scripture taken out of context and twisted. God is love. Judge not lest you be judged. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors. And all of these things are true, and yet in our culture, our, our society uses these words to discount the other things that God has spoken. Judge not lest you be judged, and yet God also says to us, cleanse out the leaven from your midst. There is a context in which it's appropriate to render judgments within the church, for instance, in church discipline. There is a call upon us to make evaluations about what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false, and our world would have us believe that this is not consistent with love. And yet Jesus shows us here that you cannot take bits and pieces of God's Word. You must take it all together. There is never a contradiction. But if I have an understanding that forces me to see a contradiction, then I have a wrong understanding. The devil presents an interpretation of Psalm 91, 11 and 12 that can be clearly disproven within its context. Earlier in that psalm, we read these words that God will deliver His people, His righteous servant, from the snare of the fowler. Who is the fowler here who has laid the snare, who has sought to entrap another? It is this ancient serpent. It is the devil himself. Psalm 91 does not encourage the faithful Son of God to go about testing the Lord's will. For God has said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as Jesus rightly recognized. Whatever it means, it cannot mean something that contradicts that. And we need to think in the same way when we are confronted by the devil's wiles in our own culture that calls upon us to reject one part of God's Word in favor of another. Scripture interprets Scripture. This principle is so important. We must understand all of God's Word together as a whole. We can do that by learning from Jesus, who demonstrated that the true and faithful Son of God is one who trusts His Father completely in everything He says, 
in everything he does, even in the circumstances of his life, he knew that what he was going through there in the wilderness was not an indication that God had abandoned him or did not care or was not powerful to work in his life. After all, it was the Spirit who had led him there and the Spirit who was sustaining him through it all. And so he demonstrated with his quotations of God's Word a full and complete dependence upon the Father. And thereby he showed us what it means to be a true and faithful Son of God. And thus the devil's tests were ended and he departed from Jesus But he did not leave him forever. He left him, as Luke tells us, until an opportune time. There Luke foreshadows temptations that were to come. For Jesus would be tempted throughout his ministry, but especially as he came into Jerusalem one more time. As he came into Jerusalem one more time and he faced the cross and he faced the agony of the cross. There Satan worked. He came into Judas. He demanded to sift Peter like wheat. He was working through the chief priests and the scribes to bring about the destruction of the Son of God. And yet, through it all, God the Father brought him there too in His perfect and wise plan. And through it all, our Lord Jesus demonstrated perfect trust in the goodness of His heavenly Father as He faithfully went through the, to the cross knowing that what Satan thought was his scheme was ultimately the definite plan of Almighty God in order to save us from our sins. And so, in his temptation, Jesus demonstrates for us not only the righteousness that we so need imputed to us from him, but also the faithfulness that he would demonstrate throughout his entire life as he accomplished what was necessary, all that was necessary for our salvation. And as we think about this particular text here in Luke 4, then we are going to be helped if we ask three basic questions, questions which we can bring to any text in the Gospels. How does this show me my brokenness as a sinner before a holy God? How does this show me the salvation that is offered in Christ? And Third, how does this form me in the image of my Lord and Savior? And we can answer this question with some help from the author of Hebrews. I'll ask you to turn there to Hebrews chapter 2. For perhaps no other author of the Scriptures in the New Testament reflected on this event more frequently than the author of Hebrews. And there, in Hebrews 2, 14 and 18 through 18, we read these words. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And there's a lot there. But the basic point that the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus had to become like us. He had to be tempted as we are tempted. And he had to be perfect through it all. So that he might be 
a righteous and perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We all fall short of the standard that he set, of that perfect righteousness. We are all sinners, and he knows this. He knows our weakness because he became like us. And yet because he became like us, and yet, as the author of Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 4, he himself, without sin, he is able to help us. He is able to save us. He is able to, was able to give his life as a sacrifice for us. And we see that here in Luke chapter 4. This is part of the perfect righteousness that Christ, the Son of God, demonstrated on our behalf. Jesus did not only save us because he died on the cross. He saved us because he came and lived a perfectly righteous life as a man. If he did not become a man, his death would not atone for men. If he had given in when tempted, he would not have been a perfect sacrifice. If he was not perfectly righteousness, righteous, then his righteousness could not be accounted to us by faith in the Son of God. He had to be perfect. And here in Luke 4, we've seen that demonstrated and what he suffered, and the agony he suffered as the devil tempted him after 40 days of wandering in the wilderness. But Jesus also shows us by way of example what we ought to be. We cannot be perfect. We cannot go back and reverse all our sin. But God does not only save us from sin. He saves us unto something that we might be conformed into the image of His Son. And this, of course, occurs by degrees. But God works this in our life as we look to Christ, as we come to His Word, and as the Spirit, just as the Spirit worked in Christ's life, works in us to make us like Him. And so we are helped when we see His example and the way in which He resisted the devil's temptations. We are helped... Because we see, how did he resist? He resisted by trusting God's word. He did not just quote these words of scripture as if they were some kind of magical incantation. He understood them. He understood them in their context. He applied them rightly in his life. And he committed himself to live in accordance with God's holy word. And again in Hebrews 12, in verse 3 to 5, the author of Hebrews reflects on this when he encourages us to imitate him. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. We've seen one example of that hostility from the greatest sinner of all, the devil himself. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And he talks there about that later temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus, with the anguish of the cross before him, sweat drops of blood in his agony, and yet he endured faithful to the end. And the author of Hebrews says, look at him, the most faithful of men, and be encouraged. 
You will never be asked to endure more than the Son of God endured as a man. And so you know if God preserved him faithful to the end in order to save us. Thinking of the words again of Paul, you know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And in that trust, you can endure and you can persevere. And yes, you will stumble. And yes, you will fall. And you will not be perfect in every way. But you can strive. And you can be encouraged that the God who made us works in us in the same way that He worked to sustain His Son, faithful to the end. Spirit, working in us through the Word as we look to Christ in faith. So He calls us to imitate the example of our Lord, of the perfect Son of God, He was truly tempted, but he endured in the power of the Spirit and trust in God's Word. And now, when we fail, let us not fall in despair. And when our circumstances are difficult, let us not think that our circumstances are what control us or what determine how we respond. But in all of these things, as we fail or we face difficult circumstances, we lift ourselves up and we look to our perfect high priest who gave himself for us because he loved us and who intercedes even now as our perfect high priest at the right hand of the Father. He is perfect and righteous and is able to save us. And so ultimately, let texts like this drive us to the throne of grace to worship him with thankfulness and praise, and to pray that God would more and more, day by day, conform us to the image of His Son. But never thinking that our salvation depends upon that record that we accrue. Always knowing that it depends upon Him who is perfect in His obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about Your Holy Word and we think about Your Holy Son, whom You sent as a man, who became like us, that he might save us. We are struck with awe that you should so love us, faithless as we have been, that you should so desire to make us faithful as he is. So we pray, Lord, that you would work that in our lives. And let us, Lord, never despair and never think that because of our failures, past or present, that somehow we've run our course and we're no longer able to come into your favor. But let us always look to him in those moments, knowing that it's not our righteousness, it's his that makes us acceptable before you. May we never lose this trust and faith. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.